How do you study an animal so elusive it's known as the ghost of the mountain? For researchers at the Snow Leopard Trust, the answer is artificial intelligence. By using Microsoft AI to analyze thousands of remote camera images for snow leopards, a task that used to take days is now done in minutes, so researchers have more time to save this threatened species. See how Microsoft AI helps us protect our environment at microsoft.com forward slash AI. How is data transforming business? Hello and welcome to the EM360 Data Transforming Business Series back by popular demand with Series 3. My name is Max Curtin, Senior Editor here at EM360. In this series, we'll be looking at how artificial intelligence and machine learning can benefit your organization with discussions on real-world business applications and how AI and ML can improve business in this digital economy. So in this first episode, EM360 Client Director David Argent speaks to Matt McCoe, former Global Big Data Practice Lead at Dell EMC, and Nick Kukuro, former VP Global Big Data Consulting at MasterCard, about going back to basics as they start exploring where the term big data comes from. As well as this, they strip back any confusion surrounding big data and tell us what it means fundamentally. With that being said, let's start the episode. Okay, uh, we are here at the Strata Data Conference for a special episode of the How is Data Transforming Business? Matt, what is big data? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good question because uh, there's a lot of confusion out there uh, in, in IT and in the world to try and compare big data from existing data sources. And really the difference comes down to the three Vs of big data. The volume of data, which is the first V, is significantly higher. We're talking about terabytes and petabytes and exabytes of data that needs to be processed in a meaningful and quick manner. The variety of data is very different. So not only are things in structured files anymore, columnar uh, databases, they are in unstructured. And so things like videos and this voice recording are things that need to be analyzed to come up with these predictive models. So we need new tools and new ways to process things that are unstructured. And then the last V is the velocity. So whereas in the previous world we would get batch things every night where we would run reports uh, that would show us what happened in the past, the, the volume of data that's coming in from the billions of connected sensors and people and devices out there you know, using this thing we call Internet of Things, the volume is significantly higher than it was in the past. We're now talking about real-time processing of that data. So it's the combination of those three, the, the volume, variety, and velocity of data that sort of defines what big data is. So Nick, yeah, over to you. If you could uh, explain the, the term big data. Uh, I think uh, we talked about the three Vs, but uh, what's your... You know, the biggest thing for me I try to tell folks is if you want to talk about big data, it's, it's kind of like going to a shopping mall. So when you go to a shopping mall today, you get inundated with so much stimulus. So you walk in, there's video boards, there's shops, there's stores, there's, there's all the people spraying perfume on you, everything. So there's so much information, data that's there, and all you want to do is find a certain particular store, a particular pair of shoes, or a particular item of clothing, or whatever it may be. So you've got to sift through all that. What big data does is take all that stimuli, all that stuff that's coming at you, and be able to actually get down to the point of what am I looking for, what do I need, and where can I find it? And it just breaks it all down to say it doesn't matter how many bushels of data I get to see that are in front of me, I can actually sift through it all to make a, make a message that's relevant and personal 
to the person who wants to actually get that information. It's taking data, turning into information, turning into insights, and making them actionable so that you can do something with it. That's how I try to explain big data, folks. It's nothing complicated. It's just a whole bunch of stuff that allows you to get yourself what you need, when you need it, and how you need it. That's excellent, Nick. Uh, really, really good description. Uh, Matt, just over to you. That term big data has obviously come. Uh, where has it come from? What are the sources? Well, it, it's getting back to those different types of sources out there. Uh, we have to consider the existing data sources because they're very relevant. If we want to look at what is, if we want to be able to predict what's going to happen in the future, we need to understand what's happened in the past. And so we've got traditional systems of records, whether those are mainframes or ERP system or CRM systems. But now there are other things like when you browse the internet, you leave a trail of cookies about what you've clicked on. Those are potential sources. There are images of you speeding through a red light or walking through a shopping mall. Those are data sources. There are your GPS location on your phone and in your car. Those are data sources. And so anything that can be used to take the analog world, the, the, the flesh, bones, and bricks and mortar, and turn it into a digital interface, that's a data source. It's, it's a scary, and obviously there's going to be a few more to come, I think, and how we're being measured. Nick, uh, what's your sort of perspective on where the sources are on this term and how big is it going to get? Well, it's only going to get bigger. So the sources are everywhere. It's coming from machines. We've got you know cars now providing the sensor information back. It's got your mobile devices collecting more information about you than ever before. So it's only going to continue exponentially the data that we receive. I think the biggest part for my, my ability is when I work with clients is actually how do you reduce all that complexity of all those data sources because they're all out there. The ability to come back and say, I've got you know, 100, 200, 1,000 sources of data, but how do you get to the point where one, one, two, three pieces of data is all you need or information that you need from all those sources? It's reducing that complexity. That's the hard part. Now, what we're talking, uh, particularly in this uh, data transforming business series, is looking at ways to make big data projects a little bit more accessible for the enterprise. So over to you, Matt. How would you see and how would you look at ways to reduce complexity of a big data project? This is a classical IT project problem. It is, there's really nothing new about big data when it comes to reducing complexity. The, the question is, how do you eat an elephant? The answer is one bite at a time. And I would recommend that organizations begin with the end in mind. So understand where you want to go on your journey and then start with an iterative process by doing what we call minimum viable product. Whatever you define as minimum viable product, work towards that. But MVP doesn't mean skeleton that is not usable. It means that it is providing value back to some area of the business that can be used to drive real value, monetary value, whether it's increasing money or saving money. To reduce complexity, start with the low-hanging fruit, the, the simplest use cases that have buy-in from the business, show success and value, and then with each iteration, add additional layers of technology, process, governance, users, etc. Build on top of that. That's how we recommend our customers reduce complexity. If you try and go at the whole thing with a two-year project and a very waterfall there's just too much risk, and I've seen projects be successful like that, uh, but I've seen many more that have not been successful, and we recommend customers, you know, think big, start small, but then move very quickly. Okay, so it's understanding that main objective. Uh, that's what we're looking to get down there, and obviously find ways to do that. 
So Nick, how would you actually see ways to reduce the complexity of a big data project? Well, one of the best places you can do this is you've got to break it down to what you need. So again, when you look at all the data information coming in, as Matt said, with the volume, velocity, things like that, you've got to break it down to what you're actually trying to solve for. For example, we were working with a regional bank who's like, we want to do sentiment analysis. And we're like, okay, sentiment analysis, that actually gets very complex. Because you got to do text searching, you're actually going to do voice searching if you're bringing the call center. You got Facebook, you got Twitter, you got probably about eight or nine different things or uh, sources of data you're going to bring into that analysis and then sift through it to find out certain terms and phrases that people are talking about your particular organization. In this case, we're like, okay, so you want to do sentiment analysis? That's big. That's very complex. Sentiment analysis about what? Is it about your loan products? Is it about your mortgages? Is it about your branches? Is it about your ATMs? What do you want to do sentiment analysis about? Because if we do it, you're going to find out, and they did at one time, everyone feels pretty good about their bank. But it's not that. Breaking it down to a complex problem with sentiment analysis about potentially their ATMs. Right? So when we sifted through everything, we found out sentiment analysis in their ATM world, people didn't like their ATMs, their locations. They were like, I don't like spending 20, 30, going 20 or 30 miles to get to an ATM. They were very upset about that, which allows the business to do what? Take action. So should we be putting more ATMs in those particular areas where people, in those geographies, people are complaining about? On the other side, we found out people are extremely happy with their in-bank experience with the tellers. The tellers knew who they were, they felt like family, it was a great regional bank. So it's like when you take a look at the complex problem, instead of just taking it and averaging everything out, start breaking it down to what do you want to get? What do I want to get out of this? And how do I tie that to my business? Start breaking it simple, 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 simple. You got to start acting like a five-year-old, right? The five-year-old knows what he wants, wants to try to get to as fast as he can, and he's not thinking about all the things that can cloud and create any noise around him. He just knows, I want that lollipop. It's in that store. And by God, I'm going to go get it. And this, I'm going to walk in, and I'm going to go purchase it. So you got to start thinking like a five-year-old in some cases and keep it simple versus some of us, older, as we get older, make it more complex. That's fantastic. And I think that really does simplify things. Look at what you want. And I think a good point you mentioned about uh, we've all had problems not finding enough uh, ATM machines. Maybe in the future they'll be able to drone in cash into our hands instantly. But let's see what happens there. So back to that uh, very good point you brought up about uh, being a five-year-old, keeping things simple, knowing what you want. Uh, what are the sort of benefits of a sandbox? And how would you look at you know, challenging the vendors to get that what you want? Well, you know, for us, the sandbox, you know, there's two ways to look at a sandbox. Uh, with the vendor, I'm actually going to put him in a sandbox to find out if what he's saying actually is what it does, right? That's the reason I want to use a sandbox with the vendor. You, you've talked to me about it. You've told me that your product will do X, Y, and Z, and we're about to, we're about to figure out if it does. Um, if it's a vendor who's selling me data, I'm bringing in there to see if your data is actually valuable to me. So, again, instead of going out and purchasing it all at once and saying, coming in and saying, okay, we've just purchased all, you know, petabyte of data, or actually I should say a few terabytes of data on demographics. Actually, I want to test it out in the sandbox, and I want to see if that data I'm about to purchase will bring me new insights. Because if it doesn't, it's not value to me, and I don't want to pay for it. And I don't want to continue to pay for it in a subscription basis. So I use that sandbox to test data vendors out to see if their data is valuable to me. And on another note, the way I use a sandbox, or I like to use sandboxes with our customers and clients, is to be able to figure out if 
uh, the data that's coming together if it is going to produce new insights. So again, the sandbox allows me to sit back and say, instead of creating a data swamp, which we did three years ago, there are many swamps out there that are out because everyone just threw a ton of data, petabyte after petabyte of data into a, what they would say a lake, but it wasn't a lake because it was a swamp. Now I've got to try to sift through it all. I don't know what it means, if what's in there, what's going on. The big thing with the sandbox is I can take it, I can filter it so that if I feed my data lake, it's a pure feed. And that's the other part that you use a sandbox for. You find the data that's good, you bring that data, only that data in that's valuable to you, and you leave the silt and everything else that would create a swamp behind. As an apex predator, the presence of snow leopards informs us about the health of their environment. That's why the Snow Leopard Trust has turned to Microsoft AI to find and study these elusive animals. With AI, it only takes minutes to analyze thousands of remote camera images and understand where these animals are so researchers have more time to protect them and their ecosystem. See how at microsoft.com forward slash AI. Fantastic point. Thank you, Nick. And, and about that, so Matt, uh, are you getting challenged more? Uh, do you feel that's really important? Uh, what's your use there? And particularly in and around the challenges of and the practical use of a sandbox. Yeah, it is. And, and Nick touched on the, the swamp, which would go to the, the elusive fourth V of big data, the veracity of the data. If you can't trust it, it's not useful. And so we have seen a lot of organizations that have deployed lots of data, they've thrown everything in there, and then it's become meaningless. We actually at Dell EMC went on a journey to build a data lake for our customers. Uh, we, we wanted to do two things with this data lake. The first thing is we wanted to provide a customer service experience so that if you called in and you had a faulty device or you had a trouble ticket or you needed to place an order, we wanted to provide a really good user experience for that. But we realized that in order to build that user experience, we needed data. And so what we, the first thing we did was we threw all of our data into a data lake. And then we realized that when, when we tried to query that data to find customer XYZ, we realized that there was 10, 20, 50 instances of customer XYZ, and it was impossible to find parts or orders or tickets. And so we had to go through this rationalization effort, which took many, many months to cleanse and manipulate that data in a way that we could then surface it for that meaningful customer experience. Now, getting, getting back to the sandbox though, this is absolutely key if we want to get to the deep insights that Nick was talking about. We call these, these users that everyone loves to talk about in the industry data scientists. And if you think about a data scientist, you think about someone in a lab that, is good, that has a hypothesis and that wants to experiment on things. Well, sometimes in the lab, things catch fire, you break some glass. In the digital world, data scientists write code, and they bring in data that might not be valuable, as Nick was saying. It just so happens that data scientists are better at math than programming in general, and so they tend to write bad code, which crashes the system. We can't have them do that on our production gold standard data lake. So by giving them access to a sandbox to play, to experiment, they're going to get faster time to insights in a way that doesn't corrupt the rest of the organization. And I'll reiterate the point that Nick made around testing vendors. The, the other side of that is data scientists and analysts like to use tools that are fresh out of the, uh, the release process. And so they may want to use a version of a tool that hasn't been certified by the IT department for stability and reliability, 
but if we put them in a sandbox, they can use those cutting edge tools, again, without affecting the quality of service from the, the main data lake. So uh, absolutely a big fan. I think organizations in general are starting to embrace this. And we're seeing a movement now away from just a laptop sandbox into an enterprise sandbox capability, whether that's on-premise or in the public cloud, offering that self-service sandboxing is where many organizations are going to in this space. Just to keep things quite simple, is we need to know exactly what flavor lollipop, be more like a five-year-old, understand your problem. Then we can add all the other layers onto that to reduce this complexity. And also the trustworthiness, finding out how useful a particular idea or business need is by trialing it out with those data sets before implementing and rolling it out. So once we've got all that and we're now decided, Matt, what do we do? How do we get the stakeholders buy-in? I think Nick actually touched on this a little earlier with his example of the regional bank that was testing sentiment analysis. They found a result, the customer said, our customers like us. Well, who cares, right? So you have to ask that same question internally. So if we could build something, that's not really a reason to do it. The answer is, should we build something? And the way you answer, should we build something, is by asking, does it provide business value? If we're going to invest technology, infrastructure, people into an effort, it needs to be tied back to some sort of strategic business initiative. We should not be developing systems and putting technology in place like the, the movie Field of Dreams. If we build it, they will come. That, that is never the right approach when it comes to doing analytics. It has to be tied back to some sort of business value, some sort of business initiative. And once that happens, then the stakeholders will be on board. If we can reduce churn by 3% this year, and we believe that we can do that through analytics, that, that's generally a good thing to go after. And so when we talk to our customers, particularly in, in IT departments, we say, well, what does your 10K say? What, what did your chief executive say the goals and the mission for the organization? And how is what you are doing aligned to that? Because if it's not aligned to that, that's not a good use of resources. So Nick, yeah, about that, I think obviously we hear from the perspective from Matt, how we actually uh, get the stakeholders buy-in. But you've been doing this for a while. Uh, I'm sure you put some investments in. I'm sure you've uh, had a few arguments maybe, uh, some struggles. But how do you get your stakeholders to um, listen to your research and, and, and try and get them aligned with your opinion? Yeah, to Matt's point before, you know, you've got to be able to tie this to a business problem and metrics. Because the, the person on the other side of the table, the stakeholder, you know, they're going to ask you this question. So what? This helps me how? Why should I care? Just like a five-year-old does, right? That's exactly what they want to know. Because, again, everyone's busy. Are you going to help me solve a problem, A, or are you going to help me make my numbers, B, are you going to help me achieve what I need to achieve? And the only way you can get that stakeholder to come is to actually show it to them and prove it to them. You can't just talk about it. Again, there are stakeholders that will come begrudgingly, but if you can show that you're genuinely helping them, they will come. So to get their buy-in is, is all about being able to work with them. You actually have to talk with them. So you have to get down from Mount Olympus, come down and actually find out the what, the how, and why they should care, or why you should help them make them make them care about you. So again, here's a good example. We had a we had a retailer. So the in-store retailers, the in-store uh, managers, were a little skeptical of the marketing department. All right, they've heard about the campaigns and emails and text messages and all that. And they're like, we just don't know if it drives business. I just don't know it does. And I'm really tired of having to 
you know, worry about which emails went out around my store, and I got to stay up on that. It's just, just extra noise. If they move my needle in my four metrics of frequency of visits of my customers, my my average ticket is going up, right, and they're spending more in my stores, then I'm going to care. And also my interactions. I don't want my customers to be upset. I don't want to have to hear that. Hey, all you do is send me, you know, a circular every day, every single day. So can this big data help me make the communication personalized? Because that's what my customer wants. We all know that. Can it be relevant? And then, you know, can we make sure that we're providing or the customers actually asked for what they're looking for? That's what they wanted to know because they were very skeptical. So to get them on board, longer story short, we're able to say, hey, we're going to add three more pieces of data to your data set. We're going to add location with the mobile device. We're going to add purchase sequencing and purchase rhythm. We're going to add another couple sets of data to the marketing team, and that's going to help you, Mr. Store Manager, increase your metrics. And they're like, well, how does that happen? I'm like, well, the purchase sequencing, we're going to know how to time an offer so that your customer isn't complaining about, I just get a circular seven days a week. And it's not nothing I care about, right? So we're going to do a purchase sequencing when they come into your store most often. In other words, day of week, even time of day. People have patterns. And if it's a grocery store, they're always generally shopping on the same day. If it's a mass merchant, they may come in once or twice a week, but maybe not for the same products. You know, so you start taking a look at when you start looking at their activities that they're doing and tying it to what the, the store manager knows, what they purchase and when, and by day of week, and then time and offer to do that, you actually can provide him, that store manager, with the metrics that he is looking to be able to use, it's going to drive his world. So again, if we took a look at that, one of the examples we did was just a set of customers, or actually a customer, this is a customer, this is a market of one. This individual, she shops for apparel and accessories at this mass merchant. She buys beauty products, and she buys home goods products. And we're like, okay, we understood that. We know that. Okay, so what else? Well, this is what we know. She shops at two of your stores, not just one. She shops at one in downtown, where she shops when she's working, and then she shops one in her neighborhood. Did you know that? Wasn't really aware of it because the two stores never communicated that yeah. much, and we really didn't pull that information together. Do you also know that she shops for beauty products in the afternoon, on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, Wednesdays and twice a month? Really? Got it. There's, there's now got a rhythm going in the sequence. Do you know that she also shops for home goods, you know, which is primarily purchased on weekdays as well, but only twice a quarter? So she's buying beauty products, we know, on a regular pace inside your store. Every now and then she's going to buy some type of home goods products from your store. It's only twice a month. And they're generally small items like containers, you know, or, or, you know, storage containers. But at the store by her house, she buys apparel. And she doesn't just buy her apparel, she buys herself. She goes after, basically, she buys uh, juniors, and she's got infant. So we know that she's got small children, which you already knew, but she, now you know where she's shopping. So now you want to put out a relevant offer to her, Okay. So the question for me is, it's Tuesday, it's in the middle of the week, and I want to put an offer out to her. What should I be putting an offer out to her? Especially if I know she's already shopped for apparel at your other store on that last Saturday. She's been in your, your other store Saturday. And we already know it's the middle of the week, it's the middle of the month, and she's not going to be shopping for home goods. Are you going to be hitting her up with all of your circular, or are you going to try to go after the beauty products that she's been purchasing from you and try to add on? 
Because if she's only buying beauty products and she's only buying eye and face, there's still nail out there, there's still, you know, hair. There's a lot more that we could be purchasing here. So again, those are the relevant offers that are going to be for her to see if you can increase the transaction size and maybe even increase the frequency of visit uh, maybe on some of the other items, whether it's apparel or those home goods as well. So you can test those things out in a test and learn environment. That's to the sandbox map, right? So again, the question was, could we do that? Well, what we found out in the test markets is you can. It became personalized. The customer it became relevant to them. It became not just, I'm just one of a million. They're actually looking at what, what means something to me. So that's how you start to merge the brick and mortar into the digital space. And when you test it out, and you can show the average ticket went up by about $8 per transaction on her beauty, to, as I said, 8 to 20 on her beauty products. Does that make a difference to you, Mr. Store Manager? Absolutely. Absolutely. And how about you, Mr. Store Manager in apparel, by doing some add-on secondary offers, we're able to get her to come in one more time during the course of the month to go shopping because we gave her relevant offers in juniors and infant. So you got one more visit from her, which basically means maybe an average transaction for this person of $105 in apparel is another $105 into your pocket. That's the power of big data. That's the power of using a sandbox that you test and learn and test things out, what makes a difference. And then you get down to the point of what we want to be, which is using data to become more personal. Using data to make someone feel like it's a, the experience that they're having is their experience, not an experience you're trying to force upon them. And that's what happens when you start looking at it. And then the stakeholders, the store managers will come, which is ex exceptional. The marketing team will say, I see the value of that additional data. I want to have that data inside my, my campaigns to do my data mining. And it just starts to snowball. Again, you got to start small, to Matt's point. But you got to think big, but start small and then be able to scale fast. And that's what I would add. Because again, you can do this across all of your customers. Because big data enables that. High performance computing enables that. Especially if you want to do this in real time, if you use location services and you know that person is down aisle four in your store, what should I be offering them? Or can I, how can I get them to aisle four when they only stay in aisles one and two? Those are problems and challenges that we're, we're actually diving into in retail today with big data to get the store owners and the brick-and-mortar people to understand how you can use the digital space to drive brick-and-mortar traffic and vice versa. Again, what makes a difference to folks and how can you get there? So that's absolutely fantastic and really good analogy. I don't think we should be uh, afraid uh, and I think listeners, the stakeholders, need to be advised of the opportunities. Let's not just create, uh, have a, an initiative or try and drive, drive sales to give an offer or a two-for-one at your local store when uh, you're just overstocked. Yeah, Make it more personal. And I think we can be uh, a lot smarter with data. So just to wrap this up very quickly and conclude uh, today's talk, Matt, uh, if you could just give a little bit of advice to our listeners of how they can be smarter with their data. Yeah, well, it, Nick touched on so many really good topics there. Uh, you used the term earlier, actionable, right? Get, getting, getting to actionable insights. Just because you discover something it's not going to be meaningful unless you can actually act on it as an organization. You can take that insight after you've gone through that iterative process through the sandboxing, you've gained stakeholder approval, 
you've then got to operationalize it. You've got to do something that impacts your customers in some sort of meaningful way. And that's a really challenging process. And, it, and again, it requires consensus and it requires buy-in. It requires technology, people, and process to do that. And so, again, starting with small use cases and going through that process a few times, you're going to mature the way you think about doing things. And the first time is going to be really painful. The second time is going to be painful. The third time will be less painful. And as you implement your use cases, it becomes less and less painful. You have more process involved, and this just becomes part of your business. But it doesn't happen overnight. It is a journey that you have to go on. Beginning with the end in mind, starting small, and doing things in a way that's meaningful to your stakeholders in the business, that's how we recommend you proceed. That's fantastic. Let's just make it a bit more meaningful, uh, a bit more outlined, a bit clearer uh, to people to be smarter. And to conclude, Nick, is there any advice you can give to our listeners? You know, the, the biggest thing you can do is, is, is the term not just actionable but relevant as well. You know, you want to be relevant, whether it's to your customer, whether it's to your business, really even to yourself. Um, you People do not like, um, even no matter where they are, just information for information's sake. To Matt's point, it has to be actionable, but it also has to be relevant. It has to mean something to me now, and to, especially today when I'm in the moment. It has to be re re relevant to them. And also, don't forget that when you deal with data, in many cases, you have to actually think about how you use the data. Just because you have it doesn't mean you should use it. So the, uh, there's my one cautionary tale. Again, there's an ethical use of data. So again, sometimes you want to be the parent of that five-year-old to be able to say, even though I know this, I don't want to use it because it's not the right thing to do. And that's the other part. So as you take a look at this, actionable, to Matt's point, relevant, and think like a parent. That would be it. That is absolutely fantastic, and I think there's some really clean uh, takeaway key points there. So that concludes uh, this episode of Data Transforming Business Podcast. Uh, I'd like to thank, again, Matt from Dell EMZ for participating. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. And, and Nick from Mastercard. Thanks again. My pleasure. Uh, we'll see you again soon. How is data transforming business? This podcast was presented by Enterprise Management 360. Head to em360tech.com for more. As an apex predator, the presence of snow leopards informs us about the health of their environment. That's why the Snow Leopard Trust has turned to Microsoft AI to find and study these elusive animals. With AI, it only takes minutes to analyze thousands of remote camera images and understand where these animals are so researchers have more time to protect them and their ecosystem. See how at microsoft.com forward slash AI.